Today's episode of the Mets Up Podcast is sponsored by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. First off, that's huge. And that's what we use here on the Mets Up Podcast. I highly suggest it. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your own phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other streaming services. And you're allowed to make money from your podcast from day one with no minimum listenership. It's literally everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So make sure you guys download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What is up, Mets fans, Mets Up listeners? Back here for episode number 58 of the Mets Up podcast. Of course, I'm your co-host, Neck Mark, Mark Luino, here with James Shiano. Jeter had no range, going over all the stuff that's happened in the New York Mets world over the past week. Because, you know, we're doing weekly shows now. Every Wednesday in the morning, you can expect a new episode of the Mets Up podcast during the offseason. Unless there's some actual big news that happens like a president of baseball operations or a GM or manager get named, then we will do an emergency episode. But right now, once a week, every Wednesday morning, you guys will be able to see that. So we're going to talk about the updates with the president of baseball operations. We're going to do some more grading of players. We did that in the last episode, so we're going to do some more guys. We got five more players to talk about here. We got some Jeremy Hefner news. We got some Luis Rojas news. I know he's not with the Mets anymore, but we got to talk about Luis Rojas as well. And I mean, James is, oh, Javi, Javi Baez as well. That's what we're going to talk about too. Javi Baez going in-depth into his contract, how much he should be worth, what we'd give him, and whether or not we realistically see this guy coming back to the New York Mets. So an action-packed episode, despite not too much happening in Mets world, but we're going to talk about it all here on the Messed Up Podcast. Make sure you're following us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Messed Up. YouTube channel, Messed Up Podcast. You can find the video form there. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you find your podcast, you'll be able to hear us. And drop us a five-star rating and review. It really does help us out. James, let's talk about some Mets baseball here. I feel like me and you have been recently talking a lot Knicks basketball, but we're back on the Mets baseball train. A lot of Knicks basketball. It's Knicks season, baby. Big game tonight. Hopefully, when you're listening to this, Knicks got a big win over the 76ers after a disappointing loss to the Magic. But... I really appreciated last week. We got a lot of feedback and support. People loved our the beginning of our off-season content, the quiz everyone loves, President of Baseball Operations segment. Got a lot of, uh, again, good feedback. So appreciate the listeners. Appreciate everyone sticking around the off-season. Listening numbers are very steady. Actually, have increased in the last few weeks. So, again, we love that. But I don't think there's any place to start this episode again besides talking about the Mets' President of Baseball Operations search because it is far and away – the most meaningful thing happening with the New York Mets right now. And it's getting a lot of national appeal still, despite the fact that nothing's really happening. And the World Series is going on. Yeah, no, it feels like the Mets are kind of stealing the headlines a little bit here outside of the actual World Series. That's all I've been seeing on baseball Twitter is World Series and New York Mets president of baseball operations and GM search. Because the Mets are just every single name in the baseball world seems to be into it. And it's so funny how... Last week when we recorded the episode, you would have thought from the national baseball news that nobody wanted this job. But now it seems like everybody who's ever got a shot to get it is going to be interviewed and has a possibility to get it. And it started off with guys like Brandon Gomes, Pete Bendix, Scott Harris, but they said they're out. Yeah, those guys are all withdrew their names. So I'm going to push yes. back a little bit on what you just said. I'm, last week, our stance on this was very positive, very much like chastising the national media for diminishing this role and what was going on with the Mets. And I'm still with that mostly, but I'm pulling back on that a little bit based on what's gone on over the last week. And yes, Brandon Gomes, Pete Bendix, and Scott Harris are all out. There's been not a lot of movement on the Josh Burns front, even though the Dodgers are out of the playoffs. It seems like Scott Harris, general manager of the Giants, who we talked about last week's on last week's episode, was actually offered the job, and Steve told him he was his number one pick. They interviewed, and he seemed to just say no, to remain in an... Uh, auxiliary role for the Giants, which is something that is a little bit troubling. I wonder if Sandy Alderson's involvement with the club and how much he actually gets to decide over plays any sort of factor in these guys not wanting to take these jobs. I I think that's massive. I think that's the overarching point that I even wanted to make with this segment. I thought we'd get to that later, but we should jump into it now because there there wouldn't seem to be much pushing these people away besides for Sandy's involvement and whether whether any of them don't have like enough of confidence and are a little bit scared of Steve like leaning over their shoulder and like the way that he 
conducts himself. And Tim Britton had an athletic article last week, like literally exactly one week ago, and he had a pretty interesting passage about this that I kind of want to read now. It's a little bit long. It's, a, it's about a paragraph and a half, but I think it's worth it. Tim Britton's great. He's one of our uh, three-headed monster that we respect here in this podcast for the Mets beat yes. writers. Him, Disha, and our guy, Decomo. But hear this. This is not the auspicious start that Cohen and Alderson wanted for their search. The Mets are not conducting this search with the same hurdles as last year's when they did not start looking for a new executive until mid-November. This time, they're being judged on their own merits, and that can be a good and bad thing. Late in the season, Cohen pushed back publicly on Twitter on the idea that his presence was dissuading some executives from contemplating what New York had to offer. But the early strikeout, and again, just to break break the read for a second, we at the Messed Up Podcast do not believe that the Mets struck out, missing out on Epstein, Bean, and Stearns. None of that was really ever realistic anyway, but again, just back into it. The early strikeout emphasizes that a true frontline exec, someone who could excitingly fulfill Alderson's November 2020 promise of the most accomplished baseball person we can find, someone like Epstein, Bean, or Stearns, might not want to deal with Cohen's intrusions. Cohen was reasonably active as an owner in his first season in things like negotiating the Francisco Lindor extension some at, at one point on Twitter and criticizing aspects of his team's play and demeanor also on Twitter. And this part is what I think is more important to what's going on now. Even though I do think that Britain has a point that some of the most accomplished people in baseball, even in the history of baseball, if you look at Bean and Epstein, probably don't want to deal with a guy like Cohen who is very much on top of it. But now the Alderson part. Well, I was going to say, although to the Bean thing, he did say that if he were to ever leave the A's, it would only and to work in New York, it would only be for Steve Cohen and Sandy Alderson. Okay, well, then that kills that point. But now the Alderson <laughs> stuff. Alderson's presence can be complicating in its own right. One of the sport's preeminent executives of the last 40 years, Alderson and his role in a future front office remains nebulous, with a word from Tibby Britton. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I'll get a real definition right now, I guess. Yeah, what does nebulous too. mean? We've, we finally got the SAT word that I, I'm not dropping on the podcast this time. It means, like, indistinct, but I want to read the real definition. In a form of a cloud or haze, a concept or idea that is unclear, vague, or ill-defined. Okay. Yeah. Alderson and his role in a future front office remain nebulous, undefined, which I think we'd all agree with at this point. It's how it kind of was last year. The more the Mets have messed up with the construction of that regime, the more responsibility has fallen into Alderson's hands, which is true. The idea is for him to move over to the business side once the Mets bring in a new executive, but last year he mentioned still wanting to have a seat at the table for baseball decisions. And truly, if I was a young hotshot who had an opportunity to put my stamp on organization, I would not love the idea of this dinosaur sitting at the table having final say over my decisions when he, the, the game has really passed him by, it seems like. And that's where I was trying to, or what I was alluding to when I brought up that question, is that I, I don't even know what Sandy Alderson's actual role is with the team. What's what's his given role? Because he's he seems to be acting like the president of baseball operations the way the Mets are currently working. But they, as we know, they're looking for one. But as you just said there, he still wants to be involved. So it's like, dude, you got to pick a side. You either are going to lead this organization and be very much involved, or you have to go to the business side and stop caring about the actual baseball decisions being made. Because, like you said, there's no way anybody wants someone looking over their neck, let alone two guys looking over their neck, one of which you don't even really know what he does in Sandy Alderson. So, like, I think that's definitely scaring more people away that's my bigger concern is the Sandy Alderson factor of him looming over whoever is supposed to be the president. I mean, it's kind of like, it's like he's babysitting almost. Definitely, especially while that role is ill-defined because this wasn't supposed to happen last year too. And of course, there were extenuating circumstances with Jared Porter being fired for sex sexual assault. But Sandy Alderson has been Steve Cohen's right-hand man through this entire process. We've mentioned this before. Like He was next to him at the introductory press conference when he purchased the Mets. Like Steve Cohen has not made a move without Sandy Alderson next to him. So it seems like these two are basically their own brain trust at this point, and this new person coming in, even though while it won't be a part of their title, it seems like at the end of the day, they will still technically be below these people. And this is diversion from what Steve Cohen said when he bought this team that he knows that he's not a part of baseball and he wants to put the right people in place to make these decisions unwittingly 
now Sandy Alderson basically feels like an extension of him and vice versa, and he is the wrong person to be in charge of baseball operations, even though he won't technically be in charge of baseball operations. The fact that this guy who's been in baseball for 40 years, who's worked in the commissioner's office, who's taken multiple franchises from the brink of demise to uh, competence and even past that, is going to still be sitting at that proverbial table would be troubling for a young hotshot potential president. And I think that's why maybe some of the guys like Gomes or Harris or Bendix, who are a little more seasoned, I would say, a little more like kind of on the path to where they need to go and they don't need to go jump to the Mets right now because they're going to get there soon. The Mets ha- might have to be a little bit more aggressive with someone maybe a little lesser known that's making a bigger jump because it does seem like you said this two-headed monster or whatever we want to call it is going to always kind of just be breathing down your neck a little bit. And even so, wasn't there a rumor that Steve Cohen, he's been doing pretty much all the interviewing and that like Sandy hasn't even really been like in the interviews. Like Cohen wanted, like you said, Scott Harris, and I think interviewed him and has been like the guy that has been in communication making these decisions apparently. And that's definitely the language that has come out in the, the beat writers' reports about it because it said that Steve Cohen spoke to Scott Harris. So I, mean, that, I take that very literally. Steve Cohen spoke to Scott Harris. And it's even more peculiar for guys like Gomes and Harris because the organizations that they're inside of, it doesn't seem like they have much more room to rise up. You know what I mean? Like, Freeman's not going anywhere. I guess maybe Gomes could think that Burns might still come to the Mets. I guess that's a possibility. I haven't seen his name get removed yet, but there's just been nothing on that front. So they probably think there is immediate rise for them. And Bendix, it's always worth staying with the Rays because those guys leave all the time. Like, that's just the way the Rays front office operates. They're just a band of super geniuses, so that could happen. But it still makes the whole thing a little peculiar that a guy like Scott Harris, who wasn't even either of our favorite because the guy's still tied to Theo Epstein, those Cubs teams, that the jury's basically out on what that core really was. It's a little strange, a little strange. But again, we should also throw in the fact that Matt Arnold, over the last hour or two, has been heavily linked to this job, like heavily. We're having a source-off currently between Mike Puma and Andy Martino, which is... I don't don't want either of those guys to be involved in my source-off. Mike Mayer has also come to the forefront and said that there's... There's optimism that something can get done, and I think he's by far my favorite candidate that's still left. I think maybe possibly yours, too. Yeah, uh, based on the stuff that I've seen, Brewers, he worked with the Rays before that. Those are two smart organizations. I'd love to have him. End of the day, he's David Stern's right-hand man, and I'll take that any day of the week. But we did. We have to shout out our guy Mets Metrics because we've learned now that while it's always customary to allow your front office uh, executives to interview for jobs that are promotions it's not absolutely required and the brewers the whole source of this source off is that the brewers might have actually blocked him from interviewing with the Mets for the president of baseball operations which would just be such a travesty it would be so shitty and of course it would happen to the friggin Mets if it did because why wouldn't it but also like it's kind of a bad look for the Brewers, and if you're a guy like in the Brewers organization, that like leads you to believe that there's not much room for you to actually grow within that organization. And that might be a poor long-term play for them, because it's going to be more difficult for them to acquire executive talent from other sources if these people know that they're not going to be able to get promoted if they're under contract with the Brewers. And the Brewers are smart. The Brewers use every little teeny tiny ounce of every resource they have, so this would make logical sense, but it would really be shitty for just Matt Arnold's perspective, if he actually wants this job. It seems like where there's smoke, there's fire that he might. This could have even been his team leaking his interest, trying to put pressure on the Brewers, trying to make them seem like um, like dark and mean, for lack of a better word. Yeah, and like you said, by all means, like the Brewers don't have to let us. It's just typically customary that you do when it's a promotion in baseball. But, uh, you know, we also don't want to sound like the little crybabies and being no. like, well, let us have our guy. They're completely allowed to, you know, block it. So that's it's completely fair. Just why? Why you got to do it to us? Why Why you got to make it difficult? Let him decide if he wants to be here or not. If it's within the rules, it's within the rules. I'm not going to be a bitch, but like, yeah. I, it's just going to be annoying. And the other rumor that came out since we last recorded was Brian Sabian basically saying that he wanted a shot at this job. And a lot of the older contingency, the WFAN contingency of Mets Twitter has um, fallen into this. The word I, I'm not saying anymore, but... I just I don't think it's a good idea for Brian Sabian to be the general Matt, the president of baseball operations for the Mets. Everyone's like, bro, he has three rings. What can you say? You want to have a guy like that? Brian Sabian got three rings in a different game. That like modern baseball is, is as similar to baseball in 2010 as it is to women's field hockey. Like, there's nothing we can pull from that right now. Like, at that time, Brian Sabian was on the cutting edge. So maybe there's a chance that Brian Sabian, in his old age, with that great head of white hair, is is ready to take on this new job and hire geniuses left and right to run a good analytics department. 
Another part of this is that the Mets already do have a head of analytics who they hired last year from the Dodgers, Ben Zalmer, which is why we thought those Dodgers guys made a lot of sense. But I'm sure there's a lot of reasons that maybe some of these other general managers don't want a job when there's a head of analytics already in place that they have no relationship with. It's just a very weird situation with the Mets front office over the last, like, what, five years or so since the first time Alderson stepped down. Dude, where's my boy Hamilton Marks at? That's what, that's what I'm asking. Where's Alexander Hamilton Carl Marks? Where is he at? We got to get Hamilton Marks in the building. Got to get this guy in we, interview. My God. We need to start that rumor. Get his name thrown around. Maybe he becomes the guy. That's who I want. I'm voting Hamilton Marks on the name alone. That's all I want. I'm still a Matt Arnold guy, but Hamilton Marks is my two, my clear two. And the most troubling thing that has happened now that what oh, I, don't, I don't like this i don't <laughs> like this because i saw it as a joke on twitter i'm gonna let you finish your thought but i'll tell you the joke that i saw and i was like oh boy oh <laughs> if this is what happens again this is when i think the tides start turning a little bit on what people are thinking about the mets here no doubt and as these flies have started to drop dropping like flies i just uh, you know deconstructed the popular saying there accidentally as people have taking their hats out of the ring. I'm doing it again for this Mets President Baseball Operations Surge. The rumors have fluttered out there that they're thinking about two of the worst words in searching for a new executive in baseball, and that's internal promotion. <laughs> when your team like the Mets, that's a bad thing. And again, I don't, I don't want to poo-poo these two guys whose name are being thrown around because they're very accomplished baseball people. Assistant General Manager Ian Levin and Vice President of Scouting, uh, Amateur and International Scouting Tommy, Tana- Tommy Tanaus. That's Tannis, I don't even know how Tannis. to pronounce oh, yeah, it. Oh, yeah, Tannis, Tannis sounds better. Tommy Tannis. These guys are qualified. Levin has been with the Mets since 2005. He started as a media relations intern. He got a, he became a baseball operations intern. He worked all the way up. He was a manager of analytics in 2013 through 15 during Alderson's first regime. I would say Mets analytics were okay during that time. I think they were figuring out what they were. Yeah, I mean, you, you do see some of the names that we threw out there during those years, and you're like, I, John Mayberry. Those guys, you go, and there's no numbers that could have told you they were good. Director of analytics putting one more floor as a shortstop. I don't know. It's questionable. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. But, like, the rumor always was those years that the Wilpons were willing to pay, like, two or three people to work in the entire analytics department. Those Alderson years, and that was a big way they butted heads. So I'm sure that there wasn't, like, a ton of help there. And again, he switched it back into a baseball operations role, was a minor league uh, director, and player, and now he's been in player developments from tw- since 2015. So Ian Levin, the assistant GM, has very serious ties to this entire core that there's rumors are going to be broken up. And then Tommy Tannis, he started with the team as a special assignment scout 2010. He bounced around the league after playing college baseball in the late 90s, early 2000s. He eventually was promoted to director of amateur scouting in 2011. He most likely had control of all of those same drafts that we talked about that Paul T. Podesta was a part of from 2011 all the way to now. Promoted to his current position of VP of Amateur and International Scouting in 2016. So these are very much Sandy Alderson guys who have the Wilpon stench inside of them. And that's something I don't love. Yeah, I I mean, I like the idea of guys who came up from the start, right? Media relations intern, who's now work has an assistant GM title. It's pretty cool stuff. Sick. If they weren't in the Mets organization, if you were in an organization of success and winning and great history or just any sort of kind of accolades whatsoever. Our accolades are that we, you know, made it in the wild card. We won an NL title twice. The fucking I mean, montage our- that they played before every game about yeah. Jose Reyes winning a batting title and David Wright hitting a home run in August. We show the Andy Chavez catch more than anything, and we lost that game. We didn't win. So, like, if we were an organization that was successful during these times and he came up then in a in, in a you know, forward-thinking, analytical, smart, cutting-edge organization that's different. But he came up in the Mets, which we know have been run like a dinosaur. So, like, when I see these kind of names and internal guys, I'll tell you about the joke I saw. They're like, next we're going to see uh, Omar Minaya and what was the other dude who was a part JP of, like, Riccardi. that three? Yeah, J.P. Riccardi getting thrown around, too, as president of baseball ops. I'm like, listen, it sounds crazy, but at this point, like, oh, God, if we're hearing internal names, those guys have a chance. No, no doubt. I think it's probably one week away from that. Matt Arnold turns out he's blocked and Josh Burns withdraws his name. I think we're about in that range. But I also just want to highlight how stupid these titles are for some of these guys in baseball front offices because Tommy Tannis was the director of amateur scouting and then he was promoted to the vice president of amateur scouting. Like what kind of organization promotes a director to becoming a vice president? This whole thing is so dumb. That should should be the president of baseball operations first 
decree is start giving some real titles to people that make sense. I don't want to. I don't want a director going to VP. That doesn't make sense. Especially because you want these guys to have the best names possible. Because if the Mets actually do become smart, that means there's less of a chance of these guys being taken away. One of the baseball prospectus guys I followed on Twitter. I forgot where they were. These guys were all poo-pooing this thing all week. Uh, they really took a ricochet shot at Jack Ramsey, who we. <laughs> Mild, mildly respect that was kind of mean that was me just me, something mean to do to the 19 year old kid i'll say yeah that. but um one of them made the joke that eventually when people want to hire president of baseball operations we're going to see baseball pharaoh and a head czar head czar baseball operation it's just so you could create the new title to pretend to give a guy a promotion just to take talent away this whole thing is so stupid it's so diluted it's so dumb to listen to this weird stupid hearsay is that we're living in because it's the only like, real mess news that's happening it's fucking annoying it's just, I just, I really need Sandy Alderson to take a step away. It just, it's not going to happen, but he seems to be a real monkey wrench in this right now. Yep, and that's what I was trying to allude to at the start when I said that thing is it to me feels like Sandy Alderson, and I we I have no actual proof or information on this, but it feels like to me Sandy Alderson is what's holding the Mets back in this entire thing. And like you said, the Steve Cohen, do you want to work for an owner who seems to be way more hands on than he originally said? Seems to be pretty outspoken. I get it. But guess what? Jerry Jones, there's there's guys in the sport, Mark Cuban, there's guys all over the place in every sport that are outspoken owners that are very heavily involved, and they're not having difficulty getting the guys that they want into their organization. To me, it feels like Sandy Alderson is the problem. We didn't really want him around when the season was ending. Couldn't believe that he came back. It just seems like when he's got his hands on things, people are worried to get in business with him. Dude, we had this conversation during the Zach Scott uh, DWI episode, and you said, gut feeling, do you think Alderson's back with the team next year? And I looked in your eyes, I said, 100,000%. Like, there was just no chance he was going to leave. Like, he's not going anywhere, and that sucks, because he's out of touch socially, he's out of touch in terms of baseball operations, and Steve Cohen seems to trust him inherently. I looked you in your eyes, said that, I told all the listeners that he wasn't going anywhere, and now it sucks, because there's a chance he's going to cost us the opportunity to hire a serious executive. Yep. I just, it's, it's frustrating. It's frustrating because, again, it's that Will Pond stench, man. It's just sticking around a little bit too much. Just stinks. It really stinks. And, again, not, there isn't saying that no matter who comes in, won't make these crazy moves. Like, there won't, we won't be able to sign Carlos Correa. We won't trade guys who you want to trade. You won't, we won't really see roster turnover. But it's just from a philosophical standpoint, things won't change in a way that's going to make us more similar to the Dodgers, Brewers, and Rays and Giants. The Giants hired one guy. And he changed that organization from being a dinosaur into becoming one of the smarter teams in all of baseball. In two years. It's, it might not seem like it's important. And it like really, at the end of the day, it's more, like you said, the philosophical thing. But getting that philosophy is so right. And when the Mets, some of the guys that are being named out there and the idea of an internal guy, it feels like the philosophy is not going to change. And it does need to change. No. And bottom line here, the Messed Up podcast is, I would say, like 15 to 20% more nervous than we were a week ago about how yes. this is going to go. And that could change on a dime any second. I'm refreshing Twitter because news could, news could break now. Like, who knows? Could break at any moment. Uh, some positive news, though. Let's talk about a guy that the Messed Up Twitter, or Messed Up Twitter, Messed Up Podcast loves. Jeremy Hefner. He's back. They picked up his option. They made us sweat it out a little bit, but I've never been more excited for a pitching coach announcement like I was for Jeremy Hefner. No, absolutely not. And my jersey lifts, uh, lifts to see another year, which is the most exciting news coming out of all. I love also that Drew Flo immediately hit the retweet button yes. on uh, Jeremy Hefner getting picked up because it seems like internally he's beloved. And at the end of the day, like between 2020 and 2021, the two years that he's been the Mets pitching coach, they're third in all of baseball swing strike rate and they're seventh in K minus walk rate. Those are two of my favorite stats to use in terms of pitching because swing strike rate is like a better version of whiff rate because it's all your pitches, not just your swings. And your strikeouts minus your walks, it's just how many bats you're missing and how few guys are letting on base for free. And the Mets didn't have a good pitching year in 2020. And Jacob DeGrom only pitched a half of a season this year, and the Mets still have found themselves near the top of the league in both of those very, very important factors. So we got Ryan that would have to pay, but we got we got our man back. Our long national nightmare is over. Yeah, at least we got our pitching coach back because that was one of the few things that went right this year. And then let's talk about our old manager, uh, Luis Rojas, who's been throwing around the news. Not really as much Met news, but, I mean, we don't got much to talk about, and this is just fun to twist, twist our nuts a little bit here, is that uh, he's He's probably going to be the San Diego Padres manager or at least has a shot at being it. He's being interviewed. And, uh, I mean, people around baseball respect his his baseball mind. And I could totally see him going there and making the Mets fans and everybody eat their words and just 
being that guy that takes the Padres to that next level. And there's almost like a tiny part of me that wouldn't even hate to see him succeed there just because, I mean, you and I were both like moderately in his camp this entire year while every single person in the world turned on him. And there's a lot of connections with him to this Padres organization. His actual brother, Moises Alou, is in that front office. He's a special assistant to the general manager. Luis Rojas is apparently very tight with Fernando Tatis Sr., which I'm sure leads to Fernando Tatis Jr. having some say over who's going to be the manager of this team after Jace Tingler openly ridiculed him on multiple occasions. Well, Luis Rojas, if you remember when the Mets played the Padres this year, had a lot of great things to say about Tatis and even spoke about how hard Tatis worked to get to where he was. How could you not have great things to say about Fernando Tatis Jr.? He's one of the best players in baseball. I know, but it was it was very like, um, he was like over the top almost in that like, he really like talked about how like Tatis as a younger kid wasn't seen as one of these best players at you know these camps in the Dominican, and that this dude worked his ass off to become like what he is, and like it's clearly showing now. So like he definitely's got a connection over there. Like he he's been seeing Tatis ever since he's a kid. Luis Rojas was brought into the Mets kind of unfairly. He wasn't necessarily ready yet, probably to be this job. It was supposed to be Carlos Beltran's, and he was just supposed to be on the staff. Because he was always going to be a guy in waiting. He was like a quality control guy, I believe, in years past. He was. He's not even 40. No, he's he's a smart dude. And what, what whether you want to believe it or not, Mets fans, at some point, Luis Rojas is going to be managing another Major League Baseball team. And there's a pretty good chance he's going to have good success. It's also interesting to look at this from a Padres perspective, just to take our Mets glasses off for a brief moment. Because the Padres have been one of the more, um, I don't know, averse analytic organizations in baseball over the last few years. And the news of hiring Rojas, who was a quality control coach, who definitely believes in advanced stats and playing it by the book more often than not, kind of leans into becoming a more analytically inclined team. And I can't imagine that after watching what the Dodgers and Giants did to them this year, that the Padres are still like, fuck analytics. Especially because they're also very close to bringing on uh, Cleveland's pitching coach, Ruben Niebla, who is very well respected around baseball, who uses... I hate saying uses analytics because that's like such a weird, clunky sentence, but yeah. he is an adva- advanced pitching coach. He's a modern pitching coach, and having two guys like that on the staff is probably going to change the outlook of their team a lot, at least from my perspective. Now, on the other you know, hand, yeah. they also are interviewing Mike Schilt, who got canned from St. Louis because he's a dinosaur, as well as Ozzie Guillen, who hasn't been in baseball for... 10, 10 years, whatever it's About been. That, yeah. And there's not a shot, not a shot in the world that Ozzie Guillen knows what OPS is. And that's not even a, an advanced stat by any means. That's just on-base plus slugging. I'm confident he doesn't know what that means. There's no shot. I feel like, though, the fact that Ozzie still is technically a young man, that he could he could be more willing to accept it, especially if it was going to actually get him a job again. Ozzie Guillen will do anything to get back That's in that dugout. He was treated yeah. pretty raw after that uh, stint with the Marlins. They brought him in there to have the entire Latin reunion, and they let him manage for barely a year, <laughs> even though he was just he was just simply himself. He was the exact guy you hired. I don't know what the surprise was there, but I don't know. It does seem like this job is moving towards Rojas getting it because of all those connections and the way the organization's mindset seems to be shifting. And I, I'll be happy for him if he does. I'll have no ill will towards Luis Rojas. Nope. Me and you both, like you said, we're in his camp way more than a lot of people. And my myself, for sure, I know. Like from the start, I've always been a big Rojas guy. So if he goes to San Diego, hope the best for him. I just hope the Mets are better than him. That's all I can ask for. <laughs> Please, God. All right, that's enough of the news. Let's talk about, you want to do some grades here? Let's let's start grading some players. Top for grades. Five more player grades coming at you this week. And I kind of want, like last year I felt like we did the best, most important guys on the team. Not really the best because Conforto was in there, but the most important Mets, at least heading into the season. And I think this batch would be basically the second rung of that between who, guys who, four of these guys are under contract next year. One of them is not, and that's a teaser for how we're also going to end the show but guys who could be the next tier of most important Mets heading into next season. And the first guy I want to touch on, probably the most polarizing Met that exists, Mr. Edwin Diaz, Sugar, as he's as he's called by his friends and family. Yeah, he was uh, a, a weird player this year because he was good, but if you look at his numbers, you think he's not that good, but like then you look at the numbers even more, you're like, no, this guy's like actually very, very good. He's a super solid closer, is he still living up to the hype yet? That's still yet to be determined, I think, to that price tag of trading Jared Kelnick and, you know, all those other guys. But that's also impossible. Yeah, at this point, it's just completely unfair to hold DS to that regard because he's never going to be able to, as a relief pitcher, a closer, to live up to the 
to them the lofty uh, expectations of someone who's going to be an everyday, above average everyday player, like at worst. Like it's very hard to compare him to that. And it's not Edwin Diaz's fault that he was traded for a super prospect. That was that dumbass agent's fault. Like Edwin Diaz has nothing to do with that trade. Like as much as all Mets fans want to compare Edwin Diaz to Jared Kelnick, you kind of have to separate that in your mind from now on and just think about the player you have. Like this happened, it's awful, but we're here now. And like. He, he it didn't seem like he was that good because he blew, I think it was eight saves, and he was just in a, incapable of saving a game on the road, which is just a really weird, weird, horrible function of Edwin Diaz's topsy-turvy brain. Trumpets, man. No trumpets. You got to get this man with the trumpets. <laughs> the Mets should just hire a brass band then to travel with the team and play the fucking trumpets themselves in the dugout. Put him in because the fucking dugout, yeah. I can't deal with these splits because like, while they're stupid and they're not meaningful and it's all noise because there's not enough of sample size, Like there was realness to it because it was so fucking stark. But when you really just break it all down, take the whole season in one shot, he had the ninth highest F-war out of all relievers in baseball. His FIP and his expected ERA were each a full run lower than his actual ERA. And if not for that dumb Jacob Stalling stupid home run that ruined the whole season, an ex-batting average of 090, stupid first row, left field, PNC bullshit ballpark, his ERA would actually have dropped from 3.5 to 2.8, more or less, which is a super acceptable ERA for a reliever. And the big thing about Edwin, even though that dumb home run got out, his home runs were way down this year. His home run per fly ball was 5.3%, by far the lowest mark of his career, one of the best marks of any reliever in baseball, especially for a guy who loves to throw high fastballs and hanging sliders. Like, goddamn. The only thing is that he just really wasn't good at stranding runners. Like, whether he let them get on base or he came in with inherited runners on, he had the lowest strand rate of all the top 24 relievers in F War this season. Which you just you shouldn't have that when you miss as many bats as Edwin does, and he was near the top of the league again in K rate and K's minus walks and whiff rate and swinging strike rate. It's just he's not the best closer in the league anymore, and he's never going to be the like have the value of Jared Kelnick. But he's just pretty damn good, and we have to accept that as Mets fans. Yeah, he's a, he's a fine closer now. He's he's good. I at home we trust him. At home he's lights out. But like you said, on the road there's just something that goes on in his brain. He is. He is a head case. I think there's no way around it. There's something, there's like some mental block that happens that when he's on the road or in certain situations, I mean, the non-save situation thing even, he has no clue how to pitch in a non-save situation. I mean, part of that's on Luis Rojas for using him or the Mets for continuing to use him in those situations. But at some point, if you've got the talent, you got to pitch, you know? So I think for me, Edwin Diaz, fine season. I'm going to give him like a B minus. It was good. I gave him a B. I think he's a okay. B. Yeah, we're and right like- around the same thing. Closer head cases. It's just part of the game. And he's still the best pitcher in your bullpen. So you have to use him in those tie situations. If he can't handle that, that's on him. Like, everything would tell you that there's no reason, numbers-wise, that he shouldn't be able to do well in those situations. He just has to just simply be better. And I I mean, I don't know. I don't know if he will. If there's any, you know, big preaching thing here for Edwin Diaz, I I watch him close games now. I watch him when he comes to the game. I used to not watch this guy pitch. So we've grown now to at least have some sort of trust in Edwin Diaz. I still... He's not one of these lights-out closers by any means yet, but when his stuff is clicking, he is pretty unhittable. Quick quick ranking. I want to finish this up so we can get to the rest of these grades, but how many closers can you name right now that you would rather have going into next season than Edwin Diaz? I, I will challenge you to name five. Oh, I could name five. Name five. All right, Rizel Iglesias. That's 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 a stretch. That's a real no, stretch. Oh, he's good. He's better. No, he's really good, but I think that he's a little bit older than Edwin, and while he had a great year, his velocity's gone down for the third year in a row. And I don't know, for some reason this year, the Angels had some of that magic sprinkle dust where they were getting more strikeouts out of all of their guys. He's a free agent. And it, he, if I would have asked you that six months ago, you would have never even considered naming him. He had two very down years in a row. I think you're, I think that's poppycock. But even, nah. I'll, still give, I'll still give you him and tell you to continue. All right, uh, Hayter. Good. Liam Hendricks. Sure, even though, again, uh, he had a pretty couple bad stretches this year. His ERA was near Edwin's. I'll take him. Uh, I'll still take Craig Kimbrell over him after what we saw. I know he wasn't good in the setup role, but he was great as a closer with the Cubs. I'll take Craig. Uh, who else will I take? All right, you might have got me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll still take the Cuban Missile Crisis, too. I'll still take Chapman. I was actually wrong. Hendrick's ERA was very low. It was 2-5. I thought it was about 3 by the end of the year. But again, like you're, like, you're really going to say, like, I want Chapman, who had about a month this year where he was borderline unusable or forgot how to pitch yeah yeah and you you could like mix into like some of the setup men like Blake Trinian I believe he's still in the league closer like I believe Jonathan Loisega could be in the league closer anywhere he goes anybody on the Rays and most guys but they have to be on the Rays you want to take a guy off the Rays I don't know if I trust that that's true yeah I Edwin Diaz like you said he's he's probably right around top 10 closer in the league 
he's still an upper echelon closer. He's still basically a tier two closer behind like Hayther and Hendricks. Like at the end of the day, it's really hard for me to say that Rossiel Iglesias is much better than Edmund Diaz as That's they fair. currently stand. That's fair. Not definitely not much better. They're close. Let's talk about an offensive guy now here after our little Edwin Diaz tangent because I think we could probably talk about him for a while. Let's talk about a friend of the channel, friend of the show, Jeff McNeil. Probably one of the most disappointing seasons uh, of the entire team. Just from start to finish, nothing really went right from Jeff, whether it was injuries or playing or just, I mean, he went through some really rough stretches or even the uh, the raccoon that happened. I mean, it, it was definitely a tough year for McNeil, and he just never really kind of had it going. Um, tough year, tough year. He kind of got figured out a little bit. Big thing with him was the ground balls. We mentioned it back when he had that huge stretch of struggling. Hitting the ball on the ground right now is a death sentence, and especially against smarter teams, which happened to be when Jeff McNeil really started to hit that skid, you're just not going to get hits. And I know you have the, the deeper numbers into here, but... Just hitting the ball on the ground, that's kind of his struggle right now. He's caught in between what kind of player he can be or should be, and that's why I think his season was a little bit uh, turmoil-ish. I don't know. Whatever the word is, I don't know, with a T. Tumultuous? Tumultuous. There it is. There you go. Yeah, this was just the first year of Jeff McNeil's career where he didn't have that patented Jeff McNeil hot streak. Like While he struggled in the past, you could just always count as six weeks from Jeff McNeil where it feels like he never gets out. And that just never came this year. And it's really weird to pull back the curtain because there were not major differences in his batted ball events. Like some people like blamed him on trying to pull the ball more, but he had the exact same all fields approach he had this year. He's had every year in his career. His ground ball and fly ball rates were consistent. His launch angle was consistent. His exit velocity was consistent. I didn't look up the standard deviation of his launch angle. I actually missed that. I forgot to check on that. But his like his average launch angle is a dump stat. We've talked about that before. And he actually hit the hardest ball of his career this season, which I was kind of shocked to find out. But it's just the ground balls are not effective anymore. The league has figured out that Jeff McNeil hits ground balls, and everyone knows where every ground ball is going now because we have so much data and information to tell us. And in turn, that made his batting average on ground balls drop from 361 in 2020 to 266 in 2021. A 100-point drop is really insane. And his Woba on ground balls dropped from 343 to 239. That's, that's not a good number there. Those are insane numbers. And ironically, this year was actually the highest ex-Woba of his career on ground balls. So the quality of his contact, like I said, has not really changed at all. It's just the other teams becoming much more wise to the type of player Jeff McNeil is. And this year, he actually had the highest average exit velocity on those ground balls, as well as the highest ex-Woba, which this just goes to show you that being a ground ball hitter in modern baseball is simply not going to get it done. And that's a really sad truth to a lot of, I guess, baseball fans and certain players, but it's just, it's really hard to find. There were so many times this year where Jeff McNeil smoked balls and they just found gloves. It happened over and over and over again, seemingly more than every player on the Mets. And it just all just snowballed and snowballed and snowballed. And he got mad. He threw his helmet and he just, it never, it never, it never found his way. And then on top of that, with all the injuries too, like his hamstring, he he wasn't good yeah, for no, like a good portion a of the year either. So I think that's this, yeah. yeah, I think that's a huge part of it too. Is just like you could you could watch him run. He couldn't run full speed. Like this guy was not healthy, and he was just kind of battling through it. So not that that's a saving grace, but like I, I do cut him some slack there because the guy was playing injured one hundred percent, and that definitely had an impact on his play. Overall, though, a disappointing season. McNeil still does bring that versatility. He could play second. He could play third. He could play the outfield spots all pretty well. So that alone gives him value. But it's for me, it's a C grade. And I think we're probably in the same grade here. But it's a disappointing season. But it's a C because, like, th- th- there's stuff there. We we know Jeff is should bounce back. We just got to, like, figure out what kind of player he's going to be in the future, I think. That's going to be the biggest thing this offseason is, like, what's he going to commit to? I also just want to say, real quick interruption, that Jeff Passan just now on ESPN said, it would not shock me if Matt Arnold wound up getting this Mets job. Hell yeah. All right, Jeff. That's good. Usually hates the Mets, so that's a good bonus. But yeah, I also gave Jeff a C because while he wasn't hitting as well as we're used to him hitting, he still can just do so many things that helps the team. Like, he's still a very smart player. He still plays tons of positions well. Everything you just said. It's just going to be very interesting to see the player he comes out as next year and whether he adjusts or we just try to do more of the same. And we've like seen him try to take that step to be like the launch angle guy, for lack of a better term, where it, coming into 2020, remember, he had, he had the long hair, he was flowing, a little more upright with his stance, and he was, he was you know, the uppercut he's always kind of had, 
but he was really trying to drive the baseball. I think if McNeil wants to go back to the value that he had when he was at his best, that's going to be the way he has to do it. There might be some ups and downs here because it's not the kind of player that he came up as, but I really do think that would be the best path for a guy like Jeff McNeil to take probably right now. Definitely. I agree. And it's just, we're going to wait and see with Jeff McNeil. And if he's, I hope he's on this team next year and I hope we can talk to him sometime soon about this stuff. Yeah, it'd be great. Uh, let's go back to the pitching side here. Seth Lugo. Man, these guys are so weird. We just got like three real tough ones here. Seth Lugo is really hard because at times this season, he was unpitchable. You couldn't put him on the mound. He just, he couldn't figure out what to do. He just was throwing his change up a lot. Like there was just a lot of weird stuff going on with Seth Lugo where you're like, I don't understand why. I don't understand how. We know he was coming back from like, what he had, the bone chips in his elbow or something like that, that he got removed. It's another big thing that probably played into his season. I just didn't have that confidence at the end of the season of Seth Lugo that I had at the start. I got very deep into Lugo for this dive because he's a guy who we regarded as one of the best relievers in baseball on multiple occasions, and he has been that at points in his career. But coming off a weird 2020 where he wasn't super effective and basically playing hurt in the lost season, it was just kind of more of this weird stuff again. Like, again, it's oddly disappointing, but like most relievers who have a 28% K rate and a 3.5 ERA, we'd say that was a pretty good year. Like that's a reliable reliever any team would love to have in their bullpen. But that's just not his ceiling, and it sucks watching Seth Lugo not pitch at his ceiling. When you pull all his stuff out from under the hood, like things look a little strange. Like this year, his curveball had slightly less drop than it's ever had. A tiny bit less, tiny bit less, even though still had the most RPMs in the league. So it's not like cause for major concern. He also threw it nine percentage points more than he did in 2020. Like almost back to those levels he was through in 2018 and slightly more in 2019. Best season of his career. And he almost completely cut that changeup out because it's one of his worst pitches. It was the least percent he ever threw in his entire career. But the few times he did throw it, it got hammered. And it was just really questionable about why he ever really threw it at all. He threw 23 changeups all year and it gave up two home runs. Yeah. And he gave seven home runs in the whole season. Two of them were on the changeups. He threw the pitch 23 times. The 23 times, he got one whiff and he got no strikeouts. And he, for some reason, is fixated on using this as a weapon against lefties to play off of his slider that he uses against righties, even though it's just stupid and it doesn't really work at all. Like, it really doesn't make any sense to me. And for some reason, he just threw the sinker more than he's ever thrown in his career, like 25% of the time, almost as much as his four-seamer and his curveball. I can't even begin to rationalize that. Like, there's no reason Seth Lugo has to lean into a contact pitch. It was the only pitch he threw more than 5% of the time, basically besides the changeup, that got less than a 30% whiff rate. It's like moronic that he was throwing it that often, and it got hit pretty hard, pretty consistently. Same with the slider. The slider is like nothing close to an elite pitch based on his movement profiles, nothing like the fastball or the curveball, which are both elite pitches. And he leaned into it. He was throwing the pitch a good amount, and it got whiffs, but also got hit really, really hard. All three of those pitches were responsible for most of the damage he gave up. The fastball and the curveball were borderline unhittable, as they've been his entire career. I don't know why Seth Lugo is muddying the waters with this five-pitch repertoire when he has two elite pitches. And we've seen tons of relievers in baseball, some starters in baseball, excel with a simple, elite two-pitch repertoire. It's beyond me, and it makes absolutely no sense, and it's a little bit troubling for me, if I'm being honest. I mean, we've talked about it before. I 100% am on the bandwagon of thinking that Seth Lugo is still holding out to be a starting pitcher. I agree. I agree because he knows he's going to be a free agent soon. You're going to get more money if you say, I can start. Drew Smiley got $13 million to, to scratch his dick for six months and pitch one game in the NLCS and dominate. Like, he's going to get another contract just the same next year. Like, you just get more money as a starter. And Seth Lugo, there's a good starter's repertoire. If he had a sinker and a slider that were, like, fine, but that he can mix in when he get through the order for a second time, like, sure. You'll be a good five-inning pitcher with this repertoire. But if he wants to be one of the best relievers in baseball, and it's certainly in the Mets' best interest to develop him into being one of the best relievers in baseball, he has to, I would say, cut out all three of those pitches and only throw fastballs and curveballs. Yeah, no, and it, it kind of led to that weird season. Like you said, what grade are you going with Seth Lugo here? I'm giving him a C plus because it seems like something that could be so easily fixed, and it wasn't. Yeah, I'm, I'm in that C minus, C, C range, so relatively same thing. Just... Just a season that was had, basically. <laughs> Nothing much to it. No, definitely not. And now, a more positive note as we get back to the hitting. Probably the most um, impressive hitting performance that the Mets had this year in terms of like uh, an expected value over actual value this year was Brandon Nimmo. 
Extend demo, baby. I threw yep. money at the camera. Pay my man. Give him it. I got $1 here, Steve. What's it going to take for you to give Nimmo this $1 to extend him? Because I want this guy in the origin blue for a very, very long time. He's just a fucking ball player. I love Brandon. He just does so many things well. Like He gave up a lot of his power for contact and like less strikeouts, but I think that's a great adjustment to make for one of the preeminent leadoff hitters in baseball. And I will say that because Brandon Nimmo is an on-base machine. His strikeout rate has gone from being below average to above average for the second year in a row, right in that 20% range. Like, we've got to stay there. That'll do everything. And above all else, man, the center field defense. Like, holy crap. Well, it feels like this was, like, the first... I mean, he still had some injuries here and there, like, still a little nicked up. But, like, it just it felt like he looked really strong this year. Even though he wasn't hit from power, he just looked like a very healthy human. I don't know how to say it any way else. I mean, the longer you get out of stay out of Wyoming, the healthier you're going to be. That's that's my motto. Yeah, and uh, we know that he's, you know, probably doing his own little workout stuff that works for him too. Whatever Nimmo does. Whatever Nimmo does, keep it going because he really was one of the best players on the Mets this year. You could see it with the offense when Nimmo was in the lineup. He definitely changed things. He gets on base like nobody else. I mean, like he's an elite on-base guy. Like you said, you're talking Juan Soto, Mike Trout, like levels for how much he gets on base. The dude's an absolute stud. Whether you want to believe it or not, Brendan Nimmo is an important cog to this team, an important player, and one of the best leadoff hitters in the league. The Mets need to keep this guy around as long as possible. Absolutely. And if you just look at like Nimmo's career at this point, it's like shocking how impressive he is. If you take him from 2018 until now, He's top 25 in all of baseball in WRC+. He's top 30 if you just take from 2019. Even remove the best year of his career because it happened 2018. Now it's four years ago. But it's just like it's shocking to really think about the production that Brandon Nimmo provides and how consistently he does it. And again, you take this year. 89th percentile and outs above average in only 92 games. Like That's not a rate stat. That's how many plays that you made that were above average. That's an incredible achievement for a guy who was well below average coming into the season. And it just, again... It's a little bit uh, unnerving that the Mets kept these awful center fielders on the roster all year when you could have had these great corner outfielders that were available for nothing, as we're going <laughs> to yeah, see we, the Braves playing the World Series tonight. With the uh, NLCS MVP that they traded for fucking Pablo Sandoval, who the Indians <laughs> then caught immediately. <laughs> yeah, there could have been a good chance. Eddie Rosario, Jock Peterson, Jorge Soler, and Adam Duvall all could have been in the orange and blue, and the second half might have gone differently because Brand Nimmo held down center field at an elite way. Then you bring it back to the hitting. 96th percentile in walk rate, 100th percentile in chase rate, 6th lowest chase rate in baseball. The only guys ahead of him were Juan Soto, Tommy Pham, Yasmani Grandal, Robbie Gross, and Max Muncy. Those, are the, those, those, those guys are basically the Mount Rushmore of walking in baseball, and those are the only people with a lower chase rate than Brandon Nimmo. It's just the power was a little bit off, no barrels, 4% barrels, by far lowest rate of his career. But he was still like somehow in the 70th percentile in ex-Woba, and he hit the hardest ball of his career at 111.5 miles an hour. And I feel like the th- I feel like the thing with Nimmo too is like when like we saw him drive a couple of balls this year, and like the power exists. It just seems like he's making a conscious effort to not be that type of hitter in order to preserve the average and on base percentage stuff. Which like when you are elite at that stuff, you can do that. No, definitely. And I'm, I'm especially because his ex woba still wound up in the 70th percentile of all baseball players. I'm very fine with his adjustment because he's still producing at an elite level. Same with WRC Plus, who was still well above 100. Like, there's multiple ways to skin a cat, and modern baseball wouldn't tell you that because home runs are more valuable than anything else. But if you're striking out less than 20% of the time, walking 15% of the time, and playing elite center field defense, you're a premier player in baseball. This is the guy the Mets have been looking for for years, and he's right in front of their noses. Yep. You have to extend him. you got to play him. And I give Brandon Nimmo an A, a resounding yeah, A. A, A-plus, a whatever you want to do. Brandon Nimmo, A-plus you can't, can't really do because 92 games, I guess. But regardless, he's, he's awesome. You're injury prone until you're not. Yes, exactly. And then let's talk about our final player here, which is going to lead us into our final segment, too. That is Javier Baez, who is, what a roller coaster ride he's been with the New York Mets. Who would have thought that, like, two months of a guy would have so many stories and headlines, but Javi, Javi did that. Especially good. not in the playoff race. Yeah, the good, the bad, the ugly. I mean, the good is that, boy, was he really good. He completely, like, kind of changed the player that he was with the Mets. He started walking more. He started being a little more patient at the plate. And like we said... He still continued to mash when a pitcher made a mistake. When he hits the ball, he hits it damn well. Damn well. In only 46 games of the Mets, he hit 295, 364, 512. But Javi Baez hitting 295. That is just an astounding number. It's crazy. Nine homers, 31 runs scored, 21 RBIs, five steals, 140 WRC plus, 
and the big ones like you alluded to, 7% walk rate and just a 29% K rate. And, of course, we don't want to give a ton of credit for the 29% K rate, but that is compared to his 4% 36% in the first half with the Cubs, walk and strikeout rate, respectively. So maybe it could have been a focus thing, playing on a bad team that wasn't really involved. Maybe it could have been a Mets player development thing. But the question is, and this is going to lead us into our little Javi Bias contract discussion, is can we really rely on those changes? And that's that's the hard thing with Javi is because it's 46 games. It's not like we've had 162 of him being this patient hitter, this guy who's mashing at the plate and putting up these WRC pluses and the MVP type levels. It's really hard. It's really hard to determine what he's worth. It's really de- hard to determine if he's going to stay that way. I mean, he's he was an A for us in the 46 games that he played. I think there's no, no doubt. doubt in that. But will he be an A for us for the rest of this contract? What kind of contract does he want? How much does he want to get paid? That is honestly the biggest storyline of this Javier Baez offseason is what is he going to want? Because there is a value there. He is a good player. We know that. And he's, regardless, always going to be great in the field. Sick glove. Awesome there. And he can play second, short, third, and he even played a little outfield years past in the, with the Cubs. He's not an outfielder, but he could if you needed to because he's a good athlete. Baseball player. But how much is that worth? That's what it really comes down to. And it's kind of like a Sophie's Choice with him because... While most baseball players, just based on the projections and the stats and the models that exist, like you could basically pinpoint most guys. You can give a range, especially hitters. You can give a range for how valuable a guy is going to be. And you really can't do that with Javier Baez. Like That second half was sick. Those 50 games that he played with the Mets from July 31st to the end of the year were incredible. But at the end of the day, that 140 WRC Plus was just barely inside the top 30 in all of Major League Baseball. And you wouldn't have thought that because he was dominant in every stretch of the imagination, but still striking out nearly 30% of the time is killing that value. And even when you look at, like, again, he has he is, like, pretty good defensively. He's elite at the position. He's not shortstop, but he played a lot of shortstop because Francisco Lindor was injured. And that kind of he pulled down his defensive rating a little bit. While he's fine there, he's really not great. And just to compare him to somebody that all the Mets fans know and love very well, from July 31st until the end of the season, in slightly more games, Ahmed Rosario was worth more F war than Javier Baez. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that's that pretty something? that's pretty eye opening right there. I wasn't expecting mm-hmm. to hear that. And while he was striking out less and he was still putting the ball out of the ballpark, his ISO dropped down to two seventeen, which that's not a good enough sample to take in an ISO, but it's still like a, a little bit of a low mark for him, which is a little bit troubling while he's making these gains and play, uh, play discipline. Yeah, and like I know this is like it's a little I don't know, not necessarily fair, but if you look around the league with some of the guys that have K rates and walk rates similar to what Javi Baez had, there's not a whole lot of names that jump off the page of guys you need to pay $25, $30 million a year to. I mean, just a quick baseball savant search. I'm looking at Nick Maton, 29.8 K rate, 7.6 walk rate. Like, how could that be, how I, could that be where you start? <laughs> like, just because, like, that's what I'm saying. Like, you know, just throwing out names here that are relatively similar we're not talking about, you know, like a Framio Reyes is one of the premier home run hitters of the league. So you kind of take the strikeouts there because he's going to drop 30, 40 home runs for you. He's also but not it, playing any defense, you know? Yeah, he's also not playing any defense. That's that's the thing. It's tough. I mean, you have a Tyler O'Neill who does similar stuff, but he's sick. So, like, where do you value a guy like this? Because his range of outcomes is so, so drastic. Like we saw on the 46-game stretch. He can be a difference maker. He can be a game changer. Or like we saw in 2020 in that 60-game stretch, the dude can stink and hurt your team. So what do you do? How do you pay him? And thank God we don't have to make this decision because I would not be able to sleep at night. It's so tough. The one thing that does separate Javi Baez from a guy like Nick Maton, who's a versatile defensive player and who has similar play discipline numbers as him, is that he really does barrel up the baseball. And we've learned that year-over-year barrels are a sticky stat, and they really prove to guys having prolonged power. And Javi Baez made an adjustment 2018 season, where he was just like kind of a soft-hitting guy who strikes out a lot and played flashy defense early in his career, to being one of the premier power bats in baseball. Because he barrels the ball up 10, 11, 12% of the time. And that, even while he's been bad at times, has stuck. And that, I believe, will continue to stick. So while the strikeouts are iffy, I think that we can absolutely count on Javier Baez being a 30 to 40 home run bat. Maybe not, City Field might kill that a little bit, as we know, because City Field is just a hellscape for hitters. <laughs> and he's still going to be able to play three infield positions, two of them above in an above average way. But I think that the problem with Javi, and basically saying what you're saying, is that we get wrapped up in who he is 
more than his real-life impact. Like him barely having a top 30 WRC plus and having a lower F-war than Ahmed Rosario over that 50-game stretch is alarming to say the least because it felt like he was dominating games. And it does feel like that because he is this incredible character and he's flashy and he's fun and he's athletic and he does wild base running and he makes insane plays and he has bravado and machismo and him and Francisco Lindor dancing and jiving and hanging out. But when you actually look at the baseball impact, it is not what you see with your eyes. And this is a this is going to be a big test for all the teams around the league in terms of, I guess, basically analytical thinking and how everyone's going to value Javi Baez. Because if there's one dinosaur out there, like the Colorado Rockies, for example, who are like, I'm going to give Javi Baez $200 million over seven years. You're not matching that. I don't want to match that, and he's going to go to Colorado. Just again, as an example, I'm not saying Colorado's ever going to pay anybody because they don't really like to. But they're, it's really about who's going to set this bar and where Javier Baez is going to be valued that's going to determine whether or not he actually comes back. Because I just don't think he's a $200 million player. But I also don't really think anybody else does either. No, and I, I, I would be shocked if he got an offer of $200 million if it's the Mets. I mean, we talked about this, I think, last episode a little bit, about what the Javier Baez contract could signal for the Mets going forward. And I think it could be a lot of different things. If they go an aggressive route of short-term, big money, I think something that we've thrown around in conversations with each other was like three for 90, which would be super, super aggressive, but you're paying a high price for the short-term contract here because Javi Baez, as he gets older, is a really, really scary player. That's Signing Javier Baez for more than four or five years would shake me to my core. And again, overpaying a guy for his prime will probably wound up being worth it. Like, it'll probably wind up being value-added for this Mets team because there's no doubt that for the next three seasons, Javier Baez will be an elite defender at second and third with the capability of covering a shortstop and being an elite power bat. As much as he's going to strike out, sure, what, what fucking ever. But there seems to be something that he does that elevates certain people around him, which is also meaningful, even though you can't put that into numbers. And it's hard to put Javier Baez into numbers. The steamer projections came out today on Fangraphs, and they hate Javier Baez next year. They project him for a 92 WRC+, which is, like, alarmingly no. They project him to be less than a two-win player next year, a negative value added on offense, and jumping back to having a 32% strikeout rate. And, of course, that is weighting his whole season evenly, so it's not splitting up the differences in his play discipline with the Mets and Cubs, but from, like, a very baseline projection, like, it's hard to really argue with that. Yeah, and... With Javi too, like we're gonna be, you're gonna have to pay him minimum, minimum. The absolute cheapest I think you could ever get him on a contract is twenty million dollars a year. I don't know how yeah, long that's going to be. Like basically the con- the qualifying offer that he's yeah, it's been offered going twenty to million dollars, and then you have to value like think about can that twenty million dollars be spent better elsewhere? And it might be like you just gave a Med Rosario who was on the Mets, and by no means does anyone think a Med Rosario is a twenty million dollar player. No shot no. in hell. But he has the same value in that time span as somebody who is. So, like, it's so hard to project a player like Javi that the Mets really have to make a conscious decision here. If they're going to sign Javi or Baez, they have to go for it balls deep. I mean, they have to go so hard. That means Carlos Correa. That means Marcus Stroman. That means they have to go get some names because you're really going to be kind of handcuffing yourself here with that luxury tax situation by bringing back Javier or Baez on a big contract. You're basically going to go over the luxury tax right there. It feels like in this season, you're going to go over it. So you've, if you're over it, you might as well go way over it at this point because you're going to be stuck in it for a while. I mean, it comes down to this. We unfortunately have fucking Robinson Cano's getting that $20 million. And if we didn't, this Javier Baez situation becomes a little bit easier. But still figuring out his value is always going to be tough because he's just so volatile. He is. And just to like give you like a very small comparison here that might like possibly shake you to your core. Oh boy. Like, like there's, that. there's another second baseman who's out there who is the opposite of Javi Baez in terms of flash frills, excitement, all this other jazz, but the guy's just steady and he's going to be cheap as shit. Can I guess? This, yeah, I guess Colton Wong. No. Okay. He's, too, he's got two year deal. From ah, he did. Okay. Who is it? It's Cesar Hernandez. Oh, and I'm not saying that I want Cesar Hernandez on the Mets, but the guy was worth 4.2 uh, B-War last year. He is a guy who, in terms of actual baseball, not like not, not actual baseball because that's on the field, in terms of numbers, and if you're looking at things from like a very strict analytical perspective, he is a clear, clear value uh, pr- 
better perceived value proposition than Javier Baez. No doubt about it. Because you're going to be able to sign Cesar Hernandez for, what, $12 million maximum? Maybe, one, yeah. One year, one year for 11. Like, that's the Cesar Hernandez, like, line right there. He lives in that range. That is going to be something that the Mets have to contend with internally, whether it's worth paying for a guy who has the superstar potential, but to just this awful, awful floor, or just, again, using that money and filling in the roster with multiple players rather than just one. Yeah, and that's uh, that's why we got to figure out this president of the baseball operations thing too here. Because if we're if we're making these moves on Javi Baez, like it's been rumored, you'd seemingly want the guy who's in charge of the team to be part of these contract negotiations, to be part of the construction of the team. Now, feel really weird if he wasn't. That'd be a weird move. It really would be weird. And just again to talk about this president of baseball operations thing and the way. It, relates to an organizational philosophy, whoever's eventually going to manage this team. Dusty Baker's had a quote in his introductory press conference for the World Series. I think this would be a good quote to end the show on. They were like, Dusty, how does it feel working for a very analytically forward front office? Like, does that go against your old school mentality? Dusty Baker, the GOAT, says, I don't believe in old school, and I don't believe in new school. I just believe in the right school. I like that. That's true. We all all have to get on that train. Whoever is going to do this job right and be smart and be on top of this stuff, that is all that matters. Well, that's like, just to keep going here on like the, the right school, I don't understand the backlash of against the nerds, against the guys who are winning, because we see the teams that are here, even the Braves, who are you know at their fundamental core kind of old school, but there was a point in the season where they played the Mets, and I think the Mets like trounced them or they beat us, whatever it was, like in June or July, and the next day, their shifting went from like 8% in the league to 50-60% every single game. And from that point on, the Braves season turned around. Their pitching automatic, quick, automatically became better. There's things here that people are just glancing over because it's done by a nerd. And sure, if you would have asked me five years ago, I probably would have had that same take. But it's 2021 now. There's no excuse to be sleeping. If Dusty Baker, who walks around with a toothpick in his mouth and where and is about as old school as it looks can get behind the analytics wave or this new way of thinking in baseball, there's no reason you at home shouldn't be. It's just smarter. It's right. It's how you win baseball games now. And also, like we could say the Braves are old school all we want, but at the end of the day, they have capitalized on an incredible market inefficiency that existed in Major League Baseball. And it was acquiring actual Major League Baseball players. Like <laughs> guys, like the four guys they got, Jock Peterson, Eddie Rosario, Jorge Soler, and Adam Duvall, were all basically ostracized over the last few off-seasons because they were labeled as one-dimensional players, guys who could only hit and play corner outfield defense. Well, at the end of the day, you have nine guys in your lineup and you have two corner outfield spots. You need guys to stand it. Adam Duvall's been playing fucking center field. He's robbing home runs in the NLCS. <laughs> like, this is conversation that the Braves are old school and this is going to be a loss for the nerds. But, like, there's not idiots running this front office. Like, I don't think Alex Anthopoulos is, like, I don't believe in analytics for even one moment at all. Like, He's he a good Greek have- boy. Yeah, good, very good Greek boy. But guys like Eddie Rosario, Jack Peterson, Adam Duvall, Jorge Soler, <laughs> these, are, these are strikeout strikeout home run guys. Like, this is what the game is now. And they got them for free. And we can't really um, poo-poo aggressiveness, even if you people think it bucks conventional analytic wisdom, because I don't think it does. No, it does. It's, it's tough, man. We got to get the right people in place. Here's how we're going to end it here. We talked about Javi Baez. Are you signing him? And if so, what's the contract you're offering him? Or what are the Mets giving him? I would love to lock Javi Baez in for one of those. Like again, I'm assuming that the that money is not an object, and we don't really care about this shit. Like I'm not. We're not the Oakland A's. We're not even a team like like a team that spends a lot of money, but not a lot like the White Sox who pulled in Cesar Hernandez. Like we're not. We're not buying Cesar Hernandez for ten million and getting twelve other guys because we could sign Javier Baez and still sign guys like Mark Hanna and Chris Taylor and all this stuff. I'm giving Javi, like we said, I would give him like three for 85 and like cross my fingers that no one goes above that and buy the buy out the guy's prime, have an electric Puerto Rican middle infield and just pray that we can catch this lightning in a bottle again and do it because I, I just don't want this to be another Cespedes. I don't. Do you want Javi Baez back? I want Javi Baez at the right price. I would not want, I would be scared if I had Javi for four years. I would be out if it's more than four years. Unless it was like five years and you're basically just paying him eight to the qualifying off for five years, then you could still find value there. But I would definitely not back up the Brinks truck, as they say, for Javier Baez. Yep, and I'm in the same boat. I want Javier Baez back for the right price because I think he, he can be a very, very good player. That price being similar to you, three for 80. 
I don't think he's probably going to take four for 100. He probably wants like four for 110 or something like that. He probably just wants a little over 25 at the minimum. Is he worth it? Not really up to my decision at this point. But again, if money's not an object, I think it's worth the risk on the short term end of things. I don't want to see a five, six year, seven year contract. No way in hell. No, definitely not. Because at the end of the day, Javi Baez has really only been elite for one year of his career. And he was elite that year. Did he win the MVP? No, he came in second to Yelich, I believe. Came in second to Yelich. Yeah, 2018. You're right about that. And then the year after that, he was a very good player. He was worth four, 4.3 wins. And 2020, he was abysmal. And this year, he had two months where he was very powerful, but also very strange and wound up as just like a three and a half win player. That's a very good player in terms of baseball, but that's not a guy who you look at and give the keys to. He's significantly worse than guys like Francisco Lindor. And I would say even, not significantly, but he's probably similar in value to a guy like Brandon Nimmo, which is a crazy thing to say. Yeah, and we'd love to hear what you guys think about this too, because this is going to be a super polarizing debate topic of conversation in the Mets world. So if you're following us on Twitter, you're watching on YouTube, anywhere you got to interact with us, let us know. Leave a comment on the YouTube video, tweet at us, send us a DM, whatever it is. Let us know what you're thinking about the Javier Baez contract situation. We'd love to know what you guys think. We do love interacting with you guys, so feel free if you ever have any questions or just want to hear our opinion on something we didn't cover. Tweet us, tweet me, at Mark. tweet James, at Jeter had no range. We love interacting with you guys. So we're going to wrap up here, episode number 58 of the Messed Up Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for following. Thanks for rating, reviewing. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, Messed Up Podcast, you can find us there. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Messed Up. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen, you'll be able to hear that. And uh, yeah, follow James on Twitter at Jeter Had No Rage, me at Giraffe Mark. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. And we'll see you on the next episode of the Messed Up Podcast. Peace out. Peace out, guys. See you next time. <laughs>